Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We're going to talk today about the day after, if you will. Donald Trump is the president-elect. It sucks. People are crying at my wife's job. There was a guy on my corner offering free hugs. I took one. And I got some thoughts on this matter. But before I say any of them, straight up, I want to say to everybody out there, just be good to yourself. You know, it's times like this where sometimes we make choices that are actually self-destructive because we think the world is so destructive. But this is exactly the moment when you want to do things like get off of Twitter for a week, drink more water, get some exercise, take that free hug, do something for yourself on a very personal basis that you know will make you a little bit more grounded because we're going to need that in the months and years ahead. So I have four thoughts on these elections, and I want to lay them out for you. You can like it, dislike it. And then I also have some thoughts that I'm reading with permission from my friend Kianga Yamada-Taylor, who's the author of the book From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. So first some Dave Z, then some Kianga Taylor. Always in these discussions, let's start with Howard Zinn, the great historian who said, it matters less who's sitting in the White House than who is sitting in. If you believed that Hillary Clinton was going to deliver this progressive agenda with a Republican Congress independent of mass struggle, you would have been terribly disappointed, as if the last eight years hasn't proved that time and again. Our tasks are in many respects exactly what they would have been if Hillary had beaten Trump. To fight for what we believe in, whether the person in the White House believes it or not, as progressives, as radicals, as socialists, as people who stand in the tradition of rights for all people. Two, the Republican Party won this election precisely because they are such a hot mess and the Democratic Party is not. The Republicans had the privilege of backwardness. They were such a disorganized cluster bleep that they nominated a racist, sexist nativist who railed against every trade deal and against the corruption of Washington, D.C. The party of family values nominated an epic scumbag. The party of the troops nominated someone who didn't know what a gold star family was and mocked POW John McCain. The party of free trade nominated someone who thinks trade deals should be burned. And they were aghast, but had no mechanism to stop him. What Trump saw, either instinctively or not, was that the fundamental dynamic of this election was that eight years of Obama have produced massive gains for Wall Street and massively little trickle down to the rest of this country. There was anger, and anyone willing to amplify that anger toward Wall Street, toward immigrants, toward women, toward the blacks, would go far. He saw that, he saw it early, he ran with it. Now, Hillary Clinton could not credibly make that argument because she ran explicitly on being third term Barack Obama and also because quite simply she doesn't believe it. She is the senator of Goldman Sachs 
And here is where we get to the tragedy of this election. And people aren't going to want to hear it, but it's the truth. The Democrats had the antidote for Trump in their back pocket. And his name, I'm sorry, it's Bernie Sanders. Bernie would have crushed Trump, crushed him. He would have crushed Trump because his message would have been that same anti-establishment, anti-Wall Street, outsider energy, but without the bigotry. If he had run, all those rural areas that came out for Trump in massive numbers would have split the same way they were split in 2008 when, frustrated with Washington, they voted for another outsider named Barack Obama. But the Democratic Party establishment crushed Bernie for having the temerity to challenge Hillary. And that's on them. Four. Yes, so much of Trump's win was animated by sexism, racism, bigotry, even a love of fascism. The KKK is happy right now, and that is devastating. But if we are talking about all 60 million Trump voters, it's simply more complicated than that. There's an expression going around that not everyone who voted for Trump was a bigot, but everyone who is a bigot voted for Trump. And I agree with that. But I want to say something about someone who's my best friend on earth, best friend since we were six years old. His wife is black. He has a biracial daughter. And he was an Obama voter. He moved out of New York City to live in Central Florida. Growing up, this guy marched every year in the Labor Day Parade with his union parents, and he fought the cops after Abner Louima was brutalized by New York City police. And this guy, this best friend of mine, living in Central Florida, voted for Donald Trump. He didn't do it because he liked Trump. He did it because partly he's incredibly isolated, moved out of New York City, lives in the middle of Florida. As he says to me, not a lot of people to talk to, a lot of talk radio to listen to. But through his own thinking and his own isolation, his own reading, he found Hillary Clinton and the Clinton family so unrepentantly disgusting that voting Trump for him was his version of lesser evil voting. I'm horrified that he pulled the lever for that dime store fascist. But I also will continue to talk to him and frankly empathize with why he found the Clinton family so utterly remote from his life and why he, an enthusiastic Obama voter in 2008, found himself feeling so left behind. And you know what? That's also on me for letting him get that isolated. It's on us to turn this situation around. And we don't have to wait four years. That starts today. Okay, maybe it starts tomorrow. Get some rest. Take care of yourself. But it's going to have to start soon. I'd like to read something else. And I read this uh, by my friend Kianga Taylor. She wrote this early on the day after Trump's victory. I don't have any profound insight. I'm pretty stunned and have been since last night. I expected Clinton to win simply because I assumed she would get more votes than the openly racist sexual predator she was running against. But in my opinion, Clinton was never a real alternative. The emergence of Occupy, Black Lives Matter, and 12 million votes for an open socialist, Bernie Sanders, was the canary in the coal mine. 
The status quo can no longer be presented as the answer to the crises imploding across this country. You cannot glibly campaign on the slogan that America is already great when for so many, it is not. You cannot patronize people with banal promises to create, quote, ladders of opportunities, end quote, when millions of people are drowning in debt, uncertainty, and bitterness. My observation is not intended to dismiss the undeniable reality of racism, xenophobia, hatred, misogyny at the heart of the Trump candidacy, but to reduce this outcome only to that misses, I think, a deeper issue. There is intense political polarization in this country. The right found an outlet while the Democratic Party buried Sanders and put forward a candidate that embodied the political establishment, the very phenomenon people were revolting against. Some on the left have talked at length about the desperate need to build and organize an alternative that offers more than, we are not Republicans. The Democratic Party has arrogantly believed that that alone would always be enough, and we are paying the price for it. How much longer can we afford to continue to delay the work of organizing a real alternative to the two-party disaster that is on full display today? It's not an abstraction, but it has to be rooted in the real-life organizing that will be necessary to take on Trump and Trumpism. This is a disaster, but we have no other choice. That's Kianga Taylor, author of Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. And now we have him on the line, my fellow dissident, Howard Bryant. Howard, how are you doing, sir? Miserable. Um, I feel awful. I feel awful mostly because I got a 12-year-old who was up all night and pretty much angst-ridden about this election. And now I'm going to have a conversation and try to talk to him about what took place and where to go from here. Not a conversation that you want to have, not one you necessarily expected to have um, for me personally. Well, I think I'm all right. I think that you get the country that you want. And this, unfortunately, when I use the word dissident, when I say I feel full dissident, I always ask myself this question. How often has this country ever represented how I feel about the world? Mm-hmm. And the answer has been not very not very often. So I can't say that I'm surprised that things went in this direction. I've always said that historically, when you look at America, whenever there's been gains for African-Americans and progressives in general, there's always been a correction. There's always been a backlash. There's been a, uh, a, res- a restoration. And, mm-hmm. and I think we saw that last night. And I think there's all kinds of different ways that you can look at this, whether you're looking at the demographics of of white women or the higher number of Latinos that went for Trump or the fact that I'm was never convinced that Hillary Clinton was a great candidate, nor did I think mm-hmm. was Bernie Sanders a great candidate. I think it all sort of came together to a, a perfect storm. And one last thing, Dave, on this too, on the other side, when I think about Brexit, because I was in London when the Brexit vote hit as well, as were you, I believe, mm-hmm. you can't insult people. You can disagree with their opinions but you can't laugh at their positions. Mm-hmm. And when you think about where we are with immigration, when you think about where we are economically, when you think about where we are with jobs, and you think about all of these different components, these components are real. Mm-hmm. You're not wrong for being concerned about these different components. Where we disagree is the reason, the cause, and who's, and what the solution is. No, I hear what you're saying. I, I and, and that's the thing, is that the, 
the working class in this country, and I mean white, black, and brown, has been crushed over the last 30 years. And I don't know if Bernie would have beaten Trump. I actually do think Bernie would have beaten Trump. But this was clearly a year after eight years of a President Obama in office where you had the stock market restore itself to its heights, yet very little of that make its way down to working class people of all colors. This was yep. the time. And with young people who were two years old when 9-11 happened, you know, swimming in debt, this was going to be the question about who was going to answer that crisis. And Donald Trump answered that crisis. He answered it with a racist argument, but he answered that crisis. And if there had been someone on the left to answer that crisis, which Hillary Clinton never did. She never did. She never did. She thought it would be enough to mock Donald Trump. And when you do that, you're really mocking everybody who's like, well, wait a minute. She's mocking the idea that I'm miserable right now. She's mocking me. Yes. That's what they're saying. I mean, God bless this guy. I hate to put it on him, but I've always, it's the John Stewartification of politics. Yep. It's this idea where it's not who's got the best analysis, who poses the best solution, but who can mock the other person most effectively. Mm-hmm. And th- no, agreed. And I think that the other piece of this that's very important to consider as well, because we're also dealing with a climate where, where knowing something does not matter, that the presidency has no currency. It's an entry-level job now. There's nothing special about it. And that is incredible to me. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, certainly true. That, that really is. And, that, and that's depressing to me because you would have thought that no matter what side, I remember, I mean, even in 2008, the argument was, was that even as a junior senator, Barack Obama didn't have enough experience. And now we went with a guy for the first time in American history who did not serve and never held office. And that was at the time for then Senator Obama, that was a point of attraction. That was, remember, that was the criticism from D.C. was that he didn't have enough experiences. But like, remember, we're we're going into 2008, the disaster of the Bush administration, unemployment at all time high, the, the stock market's on fire. People are weary of war. And the idea of having somebody with minimal experience was a real point of attraction. And, you know, in a lot of these rural counties, particularly in the Midwest, particularly in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, that went so hard for Trump. If And this is part of the problem I have with people saying all those folks are irredeemably racist. You go back and you look at the colors of those maps when Obama won in 08. He pulled some of those votes. Yeah. Those votes were much more multi-hued. Because there were because well, there were people who just wanted some kind of outsider who could go in and lay waste to this to to the swamp, as it were. Well, but what once once you get in there, you become part of the swamp. You become one of the swamp animals. That is true. And, and I I feel like what's problematic with this as well is that there's going to be a lot of postmortem about racism and about sexism and about smarts and accomplishment and everything else and a lot of that stuff almost all of it is going to be valid to some degree but the biggest issue that i had in this campaign was that hillary clinton was not inspiring Mm -hmm. i really just never thought she was inspiring i always felt like one of the biggest issues that she was going to have was barack obama in 2008 convinced you to vote for him Mm -hmm. donald trump tapped into those different veins that convinced you to vote for him. Bullied you and to Hillary vote for him. Hillary <laughs> did not do that. Right. 
Right. No. I'm, I'm driving. I'm driving past ESPN right now. I'm driving out through Bristol, Connecticut, one of the poorer places in the state, yeah. and it's. I'm looking at all this, the lawn signs, and it's like a gauntlet. It's all Trump, Pence, Trump, Pence, Trump, Pence, Hillary for prison. Yeah. Hillary for prison, and that is frightening to me. But it's also something that happened so comprehensively last night that you have to pay attention to it in a way that I think that a lot of people didn't feel like they had to. Right. The dismissive statements like uh, lawn signs aren't votes and rallies yep. don't mean anything. And it's like, well, that's not that's not true. Because no, I know what electrified all of us about Senator Obama. And I remember writing this at the time is that Senator Obama portents a return to mass politics, to the idea that you would fill an arena with people for a political message. And we have not seen that in decades, and it's exciting, and you want to be a part of it. Yep. Well, that's pretty damn dark. But, you know, I, this might sound really lame, but one of the things that keeps, that's keeping me my head above water is, frankly, knowing people like you. Well, and vice versa. I was thinking about this going, okay, well, what do you do? Well, you go twice as hard. I mean, the concepts are still there. The work is still there. The issues are still there. So keep going yeah, and do what you have to do. And once again, I feel like part of what we do as journalists is that we we're supposed to be observant. And as writers, we're observant. So we're watching this as much as we're a part of it. But right. at the same time, you still have another responsibility to speak for those people that don't get to speak for themselves. Right. Speak about vote suppression and about voter suppression. Speak about the different elements of this system that you feel were not represented. Speak about the incredibly bad journalism that led to this. There are yep. all kinds of different concepts that require your voice. Mm-hmm. So in other words, in that sense, You've lost nothing and you've gained something. And that something is more motivation to do what you do. So keep going. Wow. You know what? I was going to ask you all about Belichick and Brady and all that stuff, but I kind of feel like we can end it here. I mean, I think that, that I mean, f- those guys, basically. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> f- them. Agreed. I like you know? and, I, and, and that's a tough place to be in a lot of ways because when you're starting to be one of the older guys, you realize that you've got an institutional memory that a lot of the other people don't have. You know, I'm a child of the 80s. I was 12 years old, just like my son is right now when Reagan won. And you go through high school and you go through college with a conservative court and with a conservative backlash against quotas and affirmative action Mm -hmm. and racial preferences and all of that. And that is your normal until Bill Clinton gets elected. So does it feel like I'm going backwards 35 years? Absolutely, it feels like that. But you're also prepared to deal with it because you've been there. Yeah. And I also feel like we've got a generation of fighters right now that maybe we didn't have in 1980. That we, I mean, we, got some, we got some we'll people willing out. to fight. Yeah. No, no. This is, this, these are the, what is that? The times that try men's souls. I mean, this is, this yep. is a, this, or we could just say put up or shut up. I mean, this is a moment where people have to figure out where they stand and people have to figure out what they're going to say. Who you are. Yeah. And who found out a lot. I mean, I feel like you've learned a lot. Maybe you learned some things you didn't want to know, but now you know. Mm-hmm. And to me, in this regard, I didn't learn anything I didn't know. It simply confirmed things that 
I don't like knowing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great to talk to you, Howard. Um, thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, my pleasure. If y'all want some hope, I got some hope for you. I got our Just Stand Up Award this week, and guess what? It goes to someone who's gotten the Just Stand Up Award twice already. <laughs> and if he doesn't come on this show at some point, then there is no kismet in this beautiful universe. His name is Nigel Hayes, and he plays for the Wisconsin Badgers. He plays basketball. And on Monday, he put out this statement. Because there have been a lot of incidents of racism at the Wisconsin campus, not the least of which was an Obama being hung by a noose in the crowd. And gee, who did Wisconsin vote for again? I'm sure the people who hung that Obama effigy by a noose are just really concerned about trade and economics. That was sarcasm. Here is what Nigel Hayes had to say. Many people believe that student-athletes of color are immune to the racial injustices that affect other students of color on campus. However, our experiences are not shielded by the W we wear on our chest. Our experiences are one and the same. We are loved during competition, but then subjected to racial discrimination in our everyday lives too. It is painful that someone in our community would show up to an athletic event with a mask of our sitting president who happens to look a lot like us with a noose around his neck. That moment was like a punch in the face to not only student-athletes of color, but also current students, faculty, and alumni of color. This incident was yet another blow and reminder that there are people in this community that may not value diverse populations. When we travel and play in other stadiums, fans have told us to get out of their country or to go back to Africa. But it hurts to receive that treatment at home. It does not end at overt racial issues, but it is also seen through microaggressions. Aside from the incidents of racial slurs being flung at us, there are the assumptions that student-athletes of color wouldn't have been admitted to this university on our merits alone. In actuality, we have to work twice as hard on top of our demanding schedules to prove to professors and classmates that we do belong here. We also have to deal with not being chosen for groups and classes because it's assumed we are only here for sports and not to gain the knowledge and skills necessary for our future careers. We are fortunate to have many great professors here, but there are those who discourage us to not take their courses because they assume it's too challenging. Also, fans don't recognize the pain we feel when they voice their concerns about how raising academic standards will competitively disadvantage our teams because they assume that student of colors cannot meet them. Socially, we shouldn't be called loiterers and threaten to have the police called when we are simply waiting with friends for an Uber. Nor should we have to hear in the dorms, the classroom, or on the street people to refer to us as N-words or monkeys. People shouldn't clutch their bags and cross the street as we approach them. We shouldn't be commodified for mere entertainment but respected as individuals with ideas and the ability to contribute to society. These issues are in no way localized at UW. This is a national issue, and many universities across the country need to start addressing how students of color are treated. And here at Wisconsin, it starts at Bascom. Wisconsin can not only rely on statements, cultural competency emails, and a few surveys to try and mediate this problem. We love the UW, 
and are proud to be student athletes here. And truthfully, our positive experiences far outweigh the negatives, but no student should have to live through this negative climate. We ask that the university not continue to sweep the collective experiences of the students of color under a rug. So in solidarity with other students on this campus, we implore Chancellor Blank and her cabinet to take action, to be visible, to leave your ivory tower and speak to the students. Please create real programs, initiate meaningful change, and understand that students of color deserve to thrive in this institution just like our peers. We want to be part of the amazing legacy this university has held for years and years on Wisconsin. That's Nigel Hayes. And I truly, truly hope that on this darkest of days, this darkest of weeks, this darkest of times, that this gives you some semblance of hope. If there are young people like Nigel Hayes who see things as clearly as this and also aren't willing to just shut up and play, that says something about what all of us need to be doing right now. We can't shut up and work. We can't shut up and live. We got to be loud if we're going to reclaim what's been taken away from us. And now it's time for the Edge of Sports Hotline, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Hi, Dave. This is Art in uh, Maryland. And I heard all your unrestricted, unabashed affection for the Cubs. Usually you temper that by talking about things like the ultra-conservative owner of a ball club, like the Ricketts family. I'm a little surprised you've been giving them a pass on that. Um, so this is my comment about your coverage of the Cubs. And uh, thanks for everything else. Bye. Yeah, thanks so much, Art. I appreciate uh, the call. Yes, straight up. I did in my article um, about the Cubs that I wrote uh, talk about the Ricketts family um, and all their inglory. Um, in this particular case, you're right. I let that go uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is it's very tough to find any team that has a sports owner that doesn't make you want to throw up. In fact, I will say the Green Bay Packers, which are owned by fans, are the only sports team that doesn't make me want to throw up. Although, look, given the way Wisconsin just voted in this last election, guess what, Green Bay Packers fans? Now you want to make me throw up, too. You're on notice. So there are no good sports owners now. Thanks a lot, Wisconsin. There is something to be said for taking a moment when something truly exceptional happens to just love sports a la carte, to say, okay, there is politics in sports and there's dirty politics in sports and there's dirty politics in every moment of sports. But sometimes there are events that are just so clean that glisten with such glory that the dirt slides to the bottom. And I really felt like this Cubs victory is in that category. Hey, Dave. Ben calling. Did some a little bit of research in re- uh, response to your question about like the next leaders stepping up, um, you know, with Kaepernick. It's kind of interesting to learn, you know, that Kari, Stefan Kari in the NBA has been pretty active and, and has done some uh, courageous things, you know, with the killing of this young Muslim student, Dia Shady uh, Barakat, hashtagging Kari. 
for Dea and then putting on her shoes and then giving the shoes to the family. That to me is pretty powerful, particularly in um, this climate of incredibly rabid Islamophobia for a high profile NBA player to speak out. Um, Rogers too appeared at a Bernie Sanders rally speaking out uh, for you know, racial justice, for union justice. At a Packers game during the moment of silence, someone said Muslims suck during the press conference. Rogers responded, condemned it. Went even further than just the individual condemnation of the comment, but to say that it was reflected of the broader society that had brought us to the problems we're at now and may be worse if uh, Trump's elected. But needless to say, it was it was somewhat heartening to just do a little research and to see that Rogers and Curry have stepped up and also um, Rams players stepping up and then, you know, NBA players, of course, doing the um, I can't breathe. So, hey, man, you're right. There is hope. There is faith. Um, there are people uh, in the NBA with high profile in the NFL doing things. I just hope they do more. Keep the faith yourself, my friend, and uh, great show. Love it. I love the way that ended because that call came in, obviously, before the election results, but I can't think of a better sentiment going forward. It's like if you look at some of the political things happening in sports, people should keep the hope and people should keep the faith. Thank you so much, Dave, for the call. Call the Edge of Sports hotline. The number is 401-426-3343. Leave a message about how you're coping with this election results. We'll play some of those next week. I would ask for people when they leave their message, if you need to voice your despair, voice your despair. It's healthy. But if you can find some hope, include that too. Because we all need it. Uh, you can contact me, Dave Zirin, on Twitter at Edge of Sports, or you can email me at Edge of Sports at slate.com. Shout out to everybody who posts the podcast on Twitter. Thank you, Doug Jones. Thank you, Shivam LM. Thank you, Leah Runs 100. It means a lot to us. If you like the show, post it on your Twitter account or leave us a rating on iTunes, leave a comment. It all makes a big difference to what we're trying to do. So I just want to thank everybody who's been part of the show today. Thank you so much to my producer, Dangerous Dan Bloom. Thank you to my associate producer, David Tigabu. Thank you to the great Howard Bryant. You know, it would have been very easy to cancel the show this week. Uh, None of us were really feeling like coming in based on last night's election returns. But we wanted to be together, and we wanted to be with you. And hopefully, you're happy to be with us. For everybody at Edge of Sports, stay frosty. I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.